Hey, have you got bare walls at home or in your office? Do you want to surround yourself with the majesty and inspiration of our mountains? I'm talking truly incredible photography of Western North Carolina landscapes. RedRockPhotoNC.com. Stay tuned for details. It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the program. It is, what, Thursday? Yeah, July 16th, 2020. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Also, by the way, Red Rock Photography is going to be at Art in the Park in Blowing Rock this weekend um, on Park Avenue. That's going to be Saturday, July 18th from 10 a.m. until 5 p.m. So go on by, see my pal Stacy Redman, Red Rock Photography, Art in the Park, Blowing Rock on Park Avenue, 10 to 5, Saturday the 18th. Um, I believe it's outdoors. So, um, yeah, the COVID, I don't think, is going to likely get you as you're walking around checking out the, the artwork. Uh, the show is made possible by patrons. Folks like, for example, Bob and Jocelyn and Sarah and Frank and Trent and LL and Daryl and Eric, Meredith, Paul and Janet. I appreciate all of the support. By the way, if you haven't seen it, go check out the Patreon page because I've got an interview that I was the uh, guest, basically. Right? I was the, the guest joining the hosts with uh, former Governor Pat McCrory and Bo Thompson on WBT. Uh, and so we talk about the reparations stuff. So it's like a seven-minute, seven-and-a-half-minute hit, but you're going to get all of that in today's show on the reparations resolution that the Asheville City Council approved this week. I've got audio. I watched it. I watched it again. And then, uh, due to a malfunction in the technology, I watched it again. And so I have... <laughs> I've got the audio. We're going to go through it, and um, which is weird because I thought with our prior conversations with several folks, I thought that we had um, that we had already solved, you know, all of the world's problems, especially when uh, it in relationship to the to the racial issues in America. I thought I did that already, but apparently, maybe this is just a maybe this is a, a splinter issue off of the larger issue, and I just haven't gotten to it yet. Maybe that's why, because that is what we do. We're all about solutions here, right? Here's a solution for you. You need a new mattress. You know this probably. If you sit on the edge of your bed to put on your shoes every single day, you sit on the edge of your bed when you wake up and you go to bed, right? You sit on the edge. Take a look at the edge of your bed. Is it dipped down? Is it sagging? Do you have a, a an indent right on the edge of the mattress? You need a new mattress, okay? Because that affects how you sleep because, you know, gravitational pull and the Earth's axis and all of that stuff. Anyway, you roll towards the indent, and that's not that's not good um, because your body needs uh, to be supported in certain ways depending on how you sleep. This is one of the things I learned uh, from Mattress Man stores here in Asheville and Arden and Hendersonville. One of the things I learned is that uh, the different mattresses support people in different ways depending on how they sleep. If you're a side sleeper versus a stomach sleeper or a back sleeper, um, then you're going to have different pressure points and certain mattresses are going to be better for you and they can help you with that. Okay. And they're, they've got a great deal going on right now. Zero, 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 the triple zero, zero down. So no money down zero percent APR. So no interest for 24 months and zero payments 
for 90 days. So you basically get a mattress and you sleep on it for three months. By the way, they also have the uh, 120-day comfort guarantee as well. I mean, you can't lose. So it's a win-win-win, the zero 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 deal. Um, yeah, I mean, I also, get this too. You can get a free adjustable base. A free adjustable base with select mattresses. Uh, this can help you with snoring by raising up the head. It can help you with uh, circulatory issues by raising up your feet. Uh, then you got wireless remote, zero gravity, all sorts of cool stuff with these uh, with these adjustable bases. And the Biltmore mattress collection made in Fayetteville by Restonic. Uh, you can get a free box spring with a Biltmore mattress purchase. All right, so go in, check them out, tell them I sent you. Head on over to the website, mattressmanstores.com. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Buy local and sleep better. All right, so let's get into the reparations vote that occurred in Asheville. The Asheville City Council uh, this week voted on a resolution. I have the resolution in front of me, and I went over some of the high points of it earlier. Um, I guess it was, yeah, earlier this week I went over some of the uh, high points. The resolution supporting community reparations for black Asheville. And um, I have my doubts about whether this is more than just window dressing at this point. Uh, whatever you think of reparations and what that word means and what it doesn't mean, what it includes and what it doesn't, uh, just from a just from a policy standpoint, it's a resolution, right? It's all this is. And uh, so, okay, they pass a resolution. And when you read some of the specifics, you realize there's a whole lot of ambiguity. So uh, I'll get to that. But first, the way it is framed, because this thing now has become, did you see this? This is now an international story. It's a national story. Like, Everybody's like, oh, my God, Asheville, they did reparations. Asheville's passing reparations. Okay, Asheville hasn't set aside any money whatsoever for reparations. Just so we're all clear, the city of Asheville did not say we're going to give money to African-Americans to pay them back for slavery, right? Like, that's what everybody understands reparations to be about is paying them for slavery, and uh, that did not happen. There's no, there's actually no allocation of any money right now. So uh, that's the way it's being interpreted, though, by all sorts of national and international media, uh, because it gets the clicks. It gets the clicks right now. And uh, it makes everybody feel really, really good. And maybe they can build momentum. You've got activists with bylines that are uh, hoping to advance the cause. And so, see, Asheville did it. You can, too. Are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? This is how they localize the story. It's one of the one of the tenets of journalism. You are taught in journalism school how to, quote, localize the story. You take a story that happens somewhere else uh, and then you uh, localize it or maybe it's a national policy or law that got passed. And then you localize it by uh, finding somebody that would be affected, could be affected, might not even be affected, but is willing to talk on camera. And you go stick a, a mic in their face and you ask them what do they think about it? And there's your story. It's localized. Well, what it also does, this localizing uh, tactic, what it also does is it pushes uh, lawmaking bodies and agencies to do things that they might not otherwise do. Now, that can be good and that can be bad, right? If you have activists with bylines, they can push for things that the wider community might not actually be interested in, but the reporter is. And so they find an example of something and that nobody has heard of, and they say, oh, this other city someplace else did it, and then they take their little uh, printed-out resolution, they run to their local city council, and they say, hey, Asheville did this, why won't you? And then 
they can and they do a story and then whatever the lawmaker says if the lawmaker says okay well we'll look at it here's your headline lawmakers to look at reparations resolution right and if the lawmaker says no that's not really something that's you know anybody's asking for i've not heard anything about it so we're probably not going to take it up headline lawmaker refuses to look at resolution for reparations right that's how the game is played that's journalism okay i know i played it i was taught how to do this so it's not rocket science either you know when you decide to do the story and you pitch it to your editors and managers and they're like okay go do that story you kind of got to go do the story you got to make slot you got to fill the news hole it has to happen otherwise what are they going to do they they, they've got they got a two two and a half minute block in their afternoon show and nobody to fill it so you got to have some kind of a story so that's how you get a story. You take something else and you localize it. Okay, so this was and this was a criticism I had the other day of the headline and the writing on this by the Citizen Times, and it remains, and I almost think they may be listening to some of these podcasts, particularly that one, because they doubled down. Uh, you might say they seized or pounced on the opportunity uh, to double down here. So the first story that they did from the other day, July 10th, they called it, in a historic move, this was the opening sentence, right? In a historic move. And I said, is it really? That's speculative. You don't know if it's going to be historic, right? In so much as like, I mean, yes, everything is historic in some sense. If the city council takes up a matter and then, you know, they discuss it and it goes into the minutes and then the minutes are preserved for historical purposes. So, yes, but everything is then historical, right? Everything is historical that goes to the city council. In that case, like everything is historical, period, right? So uh, I don't like the idea that he's speculating about whether or not this is going to have some sort of huge impact, right? Because that's what he's meaning. That's what he's trying to convey, that the story is so big, it's historical. This this resolution is historical because it's going to do a lot of stuff, right? It's going to have a huge impact. But he doesn't know if it will, right? Unless, um, I mean, unless he has some sort of, you know, powers of premonition in which case then please send me the um, the winning lottery numbers but i doubt that because he would have used the winning lottery numbers himself to not be a reporter not that there's anything wrong with being a reporter just it doesn't pay very well anyway um he says in a historic move city council is going to take up the issue all right so i i i had picked a bone with that framing so now here was the story after the council meeting here's the headline in historic move, <laughs> North Carolina City approves reparations. <laughs> and then here's the first sentence. In an extraordinary move, the Asheville City Council. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's extraordinary. I guess that is accurate. It's not every day that the City Council passes a resolution that might or might not have any impact on anything whatsoever. So I guess that's extraordinary. Anyway, um, here's when you read through the... Um, when you read through the resolution, it is heavy on apologies and recognition. The first page and a half is the whereases. Um, and they go through these, you know, these really egregious uh, injuries that were done to blacks in America for centuries. And there is no denying this. Like, I, I, like I have no use for people who try to dismiss or deny that these things happened. All right, like the things happened; they were terrible, they were atrocities, uh, they were discriminatory, they were uh, biased and bigoted, and all of those things. They, they absolutely were. Yeah, I, I will not defend Democrat 
policies when it comes to uh, like Jim Crow uh, or uh, segregation, right? I'm like, I'm not, I'm not uh, the slavery. I'm, I'm not a defender of any of those things. I'm glad they're gone. See, because I believe in my default position is freedom towards the individual, right? I elevate the natural rights of humans, and I only want a government that is uh, large enough to uh, provide some modicum of protection for those humans and their rights, but not large enough that the government then stamps them all out, okay? So, like, that's my view of it. And so I don't care what color you are. Racism is the lowest form of collectivism, right? You're judging an an entire collective universe of humans based on one sole characteristic, and it's it's ignorant, right? So I don't, uh, and I'm not a collectivist. So I I'm not a racist. Uh, I don't why, know why I feel a need to state this, but I guess in today's day and age, one should just to be clear. So. In an extraordinary move, the Asheville City Council has apologized for the North Carolina city's historic role in slavery, discrimination, and denial of basic liberties to black residents and voted to provide reparations to them and their descendants. No, they didn't, actually. They did not. No, they did not vote to provide reparations. I have the resolution. They did not vote to provide reparations. Do you want to hear what the resolution says? I guess I can do that now. Let's do that. Now, therefore, be it resolved by the city council that, number one, this, the, the city council of the city of Asheville, number one, apologizes and makes amends for its participation in and sanctioning of the enslavement of black people. Okay, so an apology. And it says make amends, but it doesn't say what that is for participation in and sanctioning of slavery. Which, by the way, as far as like slavery per capita, Western North Carolina didn't really have a whole lot of it. You know why? Topography. Yeah, just not a lot of large scale farming operations. So they didn't require the amount of labor. Uh, Each individual farm wasn't large enough, basically. Anyway, so um, that was number one. Number two, and by the way, that is not in, I do not say that in a way to minimize anything. Uh, any, uh, you know, the, of the atrocities inflicted upon human beings. Okay. Uh, number two, apologizes, the city of Asheville apologizes and makes amends for its enforcement of segregation and its accompanying discriminatory practices. Okay, good. Good. Like, by the way, I do think there is value in this sort of thing, in, in apologizing. As a, as a city, as a, you know, governing body, I have no problem if there was some obvious wrong that was done to people i have no problem with a city making a formal declaration are bad our government did some stuff that was bad this government because again like my position is like government like fire right is a useful servant but a fearful master that's not my original line no i think that was washington that said that so this like that's my take on govco Right. So anytime GovCo screws up and then maybe years later, some other people say, you know what? GovCo really screwed up on that. We apologize. That was wrong. That should not happen. I'm all for it. I have no problem with the apologies. Okay. Number three, uh, city council apologizes and makes amends for carrying out an urban renewal program that destroyed multiple successful black communities. So it apologizes for urban renewal, as they call it. Right. Urban renewal. 
um, I've never been a fan of the urban renewal programs, what I've seen of them, um, of, you know, the, what, the, the 60s and such. Um, it actually goes back, and I've got some details here, because uh, a lot of times, like, what is it? So for conservatives, let's, let's look at this through the conservative uh, lens, right? You have a whole bunch of people, just take race out of it. You got a whole bunch of people living in an area that GovCo decides that's a slummy area, that's bad, we don't like it, we're going to uh, to level all of that area and build some government buildings there. And um, don't worry, if you own some property, we'll pay you out with eminent domain. And you and I both know that it's an offer you cannot refuse, right? Because they make you the offer, usually it's not worth what you could get for it, right? Even if you were interested in in leaving the property, they're going to give you some lower amount of money than it's actually valued at if they ever actually pay you at all. And apparently that was a big problem too, where these programs never actually paid out. So they kicked people out of their homes, they uh, destroyed businesses, entire neighborhoods, entire sectors of cities, they tore it all down, put government buildings in their place, and then just like scattered the people off to the winds and never compensated them for it. So from a conservative standpoint, that's wrong, right? You own that property. GovCo doesn't just come uh, get to come in and take it. I'm like, what was the whole Kelo case about, right? The Kelo case out of Connecticut went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, oh, yeah, the city of Kelo can totally condemn those uh, private property uh, uh, parcels, take the land from those individuals, condemn them under eminent domain so they can build... Uh, what was it, a casino or something, or maybe some luxury hotel and spa? I forget what it was, because that would generate more money, and that would be more, quote, public good. See, eminent domain was always understood for a long time to mean, okay, you've got like a right-of-way project that has to go, and you got sewer lines or something, you got uh, electric lines, you got uh, railroads did this too, uh, but usually it's for highways, right? Usually it's for roads, highways, sidewalks, stuff like that, and if they're going to condemn or take a property through eminent domain, Maine, they have to pay you but if you refuse to take the payment at some point i guess after court but at some point they'll just take it right so that's why a lot of people just take the money even though it's not what they could probably get for the property um and so along these lines with urban renewal like if there were people who had property taken through these through these grants through these programs taken destroyed and not compensated i do think they are owed compensation you can call that a reparation if you want, but I think that's only fair. If GovCo takes my property, like, I don't want to live in a place where they would just take my property and then not pay me for it. And by the way, this did have lasting impacts because you had people who in the 50s, 60s, 70s, right, that they own their property. GovCo comes in, says, this is a slum, this is blight, and then they kick everybody out. They don't give me any money for it, so now... I was a homeowner, now I'm not a homeowner, and now I have to build my wealth back up again. And that's and home ownership, keeping, you know, keeping a house and and then, you know, when you retire, you now have this uh, piece of property that's generally worth more than it was when you purchased it, and then you can either will that to your children, and if they have made something of themselves and they have their own homes, maybe they turn your house into a rental property, and that's now extra income, and that builds generational wealth. Even if they sell it and divide it up when you pass away, now they have sort of an inheritance, right? So this is the idea of generational wealth. I'm a big fan of it. I'm a big fan, and um, I don't I don't think that what they're so far what they're apologizing for is anything that anybody should be defending, right? Like the, 
I, I don't like I'm not going to defend any of the things that the city is apologizing for in this resolution. No one should. Particularly conservatives, people who believe in the individual rights over the GovCo rights, like you believe, you know, that that all of this works because of natural law, because we have inherently uh, inherent rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Right. You should be okay so far with the apologizing for these programs because they obviously you know when it, jim crow era segregation um slavery and urban renewal that removed people from their lands and by the way i'm going to get into some of the details of what happened here in Asheville. um but number four on the council's resolution calls on other organizations and institutions in Asheville that have advanced and benefited from racial in- in- inequity to join the city in its apologies and invites them to address racism within their own structures and programs and to work with the city to more comprehensively address systemic racism. So here's my apology. Um, I, as the, uh, the owner of this business, this podcasting business, I have never hired uh, a person of color. Uh, I, okay, I started the business in February. But uh, I still, it's still, I've, I've never hired any, well, actually anybody. So <laughs> I guess I'm discriminating against every single person on the planet because it's just me. So, okay, fine. Calls on other organizations to apologize. Okay, so we still haven't gotten to any, and this is the part, by the way, the resolution where it says, now, therefore, be it resolved. Like, this is the, usually where you have the action items. Okay, so they're apologizing, great, apologizing for slavery, segregation, urban renewal. They call on organizations to also apologize, okay, and to root out whatever racism they've got going on in their organizations. Okay, number five. The city of Asheville calls on the state of North Carolina and the federal government to initiate policymaking and provide funding for reparations at the state and national level. <laughs> so that's their <laughs> that's their big resolution is to say you guys do it. <laughs> hey everybody, we're going to pass a resolution um against let's uh, hang on what's the name of it a resolution supporting community reparations for black Asheville. community reparations but yeah we're gonna need the state and the feds to actually do that if we need any money i think they're the ones that are gonna have to kick down the money for the reparations see this is what kills me because then the story again this is and this was pushed out by usa today this thing went international because the sentence is doo, 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 doo. in an extraordinary move the Asheville city council has apologized blah 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 um and voted to provide reparations to them and their descendants no they didn't they did not agree to provide reparations to african americans and their descendants they have not done that no they no they're creating a commission the commission will then make some recommendations. The recommendations will go into a report. The report will then be delivered to the city council. The city council will then decide whether or not they can do what the report is recommending that they do. This is, there is nothing, there's nothing solid here yet. There's just some vague idea of a direction that people want to go. And look, I understand, you know, the journey of a thousand steps begins with the first. I understand that too. And this, and we shall see if they can put another step, another foot in front of the other and keep this moving. 
right? I don't know. Maybe they will. Maybe, and I'd have no confirmation of this either, but you know, maybe this is part of uh, some sort of a long-term plan, a strategy by some of the city council members. This is what they're going to build their reputation on. Uh, I don't know, but we're going to see. But this resolution, it doesn't do what the Citizen Times in USA Today is saying that it, do- it does. It absolutely does not, at least not yet. Have you ever seen a photo of the Blue Ridge Mountains so stunning that you couldn't look away? Well, that was me when I first saw Stacy Redmond's work at redrockphotonc.com. Stacy is from Western North Carolina, shooting landscapes for two decades after he realized life is short. You don't get time back. So do what you love. Don't regret not spending time with family or chasing your dream. His work is brilliant, striking, and easily affordable for any space. See for yourself at redrockphotonc.com. Use promo code PETE for 20% off. That's redrockphotonc.com. Have you been trying to set up or improve your business's website? It can be overwhelming for any of us. I know it was for me. So let my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design help you with logos, graphics, photos, and online stores, search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security. For professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs, Schaefer Smith Design. Make your site look professional and user-friendly for your customers and you so you can adapt quickly. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. The show is also made possible by Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Current events have impacted us all in many different ways, and maybe you need to sell your house. But you're thinking, I don't want the traffic coming through my house right now. Well, Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team, they've got investors ready to tour your home virtually and potentially make a cash offer, saving you the hassle and stress of buyers having to walk through your home. Start out with a video consult with Rowena Patton. She's the only agent I would call if I'm buying or selling a house. You should, too. Call her today. 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and start packing. The show is also made possible by Old Grouch's Military Surplus. Are you ready for disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for military surplus that's real? For more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It's an old-school, traditional store with a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff all the time, American-made, because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, dog tags, gear, Old Grouches on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun, and at oldgrouch.com. The Asheville City Council this week adopted a resolution that was titled Supporting community reparations for black Asheville. The story got picked up nationally, internationally, and uh, it was framed erroneously as the city council voted to provide reparations. That's a direct quote from the USA Today story by Joel Burgess, the Citizen Times reporter, voted to provide reparations to them and their descendants, and it actually does not, at least not yet. Now, you could say they've laid the framework that might lead to that, but I don't know if that will or won't happen. Nobody does, first of all. Second of all, as I mentioned the other day, all of this is GovCo, okay? All of this is government. There is not a check that they're going to be writing for descendants of slaves, people who had their property uh, stolen from them during urban renewal and eminent domain abuse. Like, like, there's nothing right now that calls for any of that. Okay, there, there's no direct payments. Uh, there's nothing that's going to say here, African-American family, here's your money, and now go build generational wealth with it. Nothing like that. It's all about government programs. I know, shocker of shockers, progressives want to expand government. 
right? This is the, okay, so we're going to get into this. So they go through, first off, they list all of the whereases, all of the abuses, and then they say, here, therefore be it resolved, here is what we do, and we apologize for slavery and segregation and urban renewal abuses. Um, we call on other organizations to also apologize. Uh, and then they say we want the state of North Carolina and the federal government to initiate policymaking and provide funding for reparations at the state and national levels. So they want someone else to do it. Uh, Number six, they then say, directs the city manager to establish a process within the next year to develop short, medium, and long-term recommendations to specifically address the creation of generational wealth and to boost economic mobility and opportunity in the black community. So government shall provide. Yay, GovCo is going to tell us how to fix all of this, because that's been the thing that's been missing all of this time, right? Government just hasn't been able to uh, put together the right panel, I guess, to discuss this stuff and make the recommendations that the black community needs in order to uh, build generational wealth. That's been the problem. It's been a lack of government. Yeah. Number seven, city council fully supports its equity department, its staff and its work, and encourages the city manager to utilize their talents when forming policy and programs that will establish the creation of generational wealth and address reparations due in the black community, as mentioned above. So that's nothing also. That's just saying, hey, make sure you support our equity department. And when they're working on some stuff that might come down the pike on reparations, you should support that too. Okay. Number eight seeks to establish within the next year a new commission empowered to make short, medium, and long-term recommendations that'll make significant progress towards repairing the damage caused by public and private systemic racism. Other local government community organizations may also be invited uh, to have representation on this commission. They then go on to say that they will write a report. The report Um, And the resulting budgetary and programmatic priorities may include, but not be limited to, increasing minority home ownership and access to other affordable housing. (laughs) So affordable housing. Again, because that's been such a stellar example of government intervention in the market. As well as increasing minority business ownership and career opportunities, strategies to grow equity and generational wealth, closing the gaps in health care and education and employment and pay and neighborhood safety and fairness within the criminal justice system. So to address all of the wrongs in all of the institutions of all of society, this Blue Ribbon Commission, well, I'm sorry, I don't know if it's a Blue Ribbon Commission. I'm not sure if they're going to get ribbons. And, and if they do, I don't even know what color they may be. But... It's going to be a commission. They're going to do some reports, and we'll see. Now, uh, a couple of things. If you want to build generational wealth, um, and I'm not talking about the seed money necessary at first, uh, because people come about the seed money like you know, like the philosopher Chris Rock noted in his uh, soliloquy several years ago uh, about the Kennedy family, like they made their money illegally as bootleggers, right? Um, they, and, and then they use that wealth to then amass power and influence and more wealth. Okay, so I'm not talking about the seed money per se, because that can come in in various ways. You create the better mousetrap, and now you know everybody wants this better mousetrap, and you're very successful. You make a lot of money. Okay, um, but other people accumulate wealth in different ways. So 
set that aside from the uh, just for now for the seed money component of this. But here is the um, here is the long term solution to uh, to having and creating generational wealth. You want to know what it is? Here it is. And people who have listened to this show will already know these answers. Graduate high school, have a job, any job, preferably a full-time one, but graduate high school, have a job, and uh, don't have kids before you get married. That's how you build generational wealth. I don't think you need your uh, government commission anymore. I don't think you guys need to issue a report every year. If you do those three things, the chances are way higher that you will not be in poverty. Your kids won't be in poverty. Their kids won't be in poverty. Right? You do those three things. This is, And this is not me telling you this. This is not conservatives telling you this or libertarians telling you this. Like, this is what the science and the data and the facts... You, the party of science, right? You guys always put yourselves out there as the party of science. Well, this is the science. This is the fact. This is the data. Headline, work and marriage, the way to end poverty and welfare, by the way. Yeah, that's one of the side effects here. It's pretty amazing. You know who did this study? The Brookings Institution. Yeah, Brookings a liberal think tank. This was done almost 20 years ago. We've known the answer for decades. The problem is government policies, I'm sure completely unlike the ones they're going to craft in order to fix the problems, right? But the government policies that they're now trying to address with more government policies, they actually incentivized the destruction of generational wealth. And not just among blacks, but yes, predominantly among blacks. So, for example, most poor people in the U.S. um, are poor because they either do not work or they work too few hours. I know this might seem completely obvious and logical to people, but that's the truth. When you're talking about poverty, black and white, if you are poor, you are usually not working or not working enough hours. This is according to the data. Right? You're not working enough hours to move, to move yourself and your kids out of poverty. More specifically, the heads of poor families with children worked only one half as many hours on average as the heads of non-poor families. So people aren't poor because they're working their tails off. And people who are poor are working half as much. Do you think that might have an impact on your income? I do. I, and I'm not blaming people for being poor, like, oh, you're blaming the victim. I'm not doing that at all. I'm just pointing out that people who are not poor work a lot more. They work twice as much as people who are. I think that's important, right? Because if you want to keep people out of poverty and therefore off of government assistance or on minimal assistance, then you would tell them the keys to success. Why would you hide this from them? There are reasons the poor work fewer hours, of course. Hard to find jobs. The demands of caring for young kids, poor health, transportation problems, substance abuse, other personal problems. Yes, all of that's true. Although a shortage of job opportunities is usually cited as some important reason for the poor's lack of involvement in the workforce, the actual gap in the work hours of poor and non-poor families with kids is observed in good years as well as bad. Okay, so this is not something that's the state of the economy 
and the availability of jobs, yes, it does play some role, but they're not the primary reasons for the differences in the amount of work that poor versus non-poor people do. In short, they say, the poor have less income in large measure because they work far fewer hours than their more affluent counterparts. And I'm not talking about rich people here either. I'm just talking about, you know, middle class, upper middle class, and then, yes, I guess rich people too. But a third difference between the poor and non-poor's level is, uh, oh, sorry, another, this is, let me back up. Another striking difference between poor and non-poor is much smaller proportion of the poor are married. They're not married. Third, levels of education. The average head of a poor family is a high school dropout. With the average head of a non-poor family, they've at least completed some college. Not that they completed college, they just have some. Okay, so what does that mean? Basically, minimum high school diploma. While lack of education is commonly cited as a prime source of poverty, it is actually less important than work and marriage in depressing family incomes. They ran four different simulations on this, uh, and they said the poverty rate, this was back in the uh, or in 2001, 20 years ago, they ran these simulations, and they said the poverty rate for families with kids was 13%. Okay, so they run the four simulations, and then they find, then they do a combined simulation, so a fifth, that implements each of the four individual tests, and they do it sequentially. All right, So they do, um, first, the, uh, the full-time work test is conducted, then uh, whoever's left over is uh, put into the next test, and that's the high school education test, and then is the marriage test. And then, finally, the test that assumes families have no more than two kids. So they limit, the thing, the, uh, limit it to two kids. And after each test... Each family's poverty status gets reevaluated, and so only those families that are still poor move to the next test. So what that means is when they stack the tests up, so if you do all of these things, it's a cumulative effect, and you end up lowering the poverty rate from 13% down to 3.7. The poverty rate among families with children could be lowered by 71% if the poor completed high school, worked full-time, married, and had no more than two kids. So what about welfare? Right? We would have to triple the welfare benefits before they reduce poverty as much as any of the behavioral changes. Work, marriage, education, family size, all of those are more powerful determinants of the incidence of poverty than the amount of cash assistance received from GovCo. Single parent families. Poverty is concentrated among these groups, among the single uh, parent homes. The opportunity exists to reduce both current poverty rates and improve children's development by a two-generation policy of requiring work for welfare and placing kids in high-quality child care. Right? You do those two things, do it for two generations, and you can break the cycles of poverty. This is what, this is what the Brookings Institute said in 20, or 2001. Polls have consistently shown the public is actually much more willing to support those who work versus those who don't. And the data reviewed above suggests that work is a powerful antidote to poverty. Advocates for the poor have too long argued that welfare was the solution, yet most evidence points in a different direction. Because work is a powerful antidote to poverty, and that, in its absence, no politically feasible amount of welfare can fill that gap as effectively. So why am I doing all of this? Well, you're just talking about poverty, Pete. I am. But what do you think is going on with all of these programs? This is what they're aimed at. They're aimed at, when they say generational wealth, they're talking about breaking the cycle of poverty that most acutely afflicts black Americans. 
So how do we how do we lift people up out of poverty? Well, we give them the information. Here are the three things, folks. Do these three things. Do these, and you'll rise out of poverty. And then you can build generational wealth. Now, that is a separate thing from whether or not you're going to get a check, right, than the reparations. Because, again, like, I'm open to this idea. I am open to the idea that there are people do money. I am. I'm open to this idea. Not for not necessarily for slavery, but uh, I am open to the idea. Like, I'm, I'm, I'll listen to the arguments because you know me. You know, I'll listen to everybody's arguments. But um, I am open to the idea that particularly people who had wealth and had it confiscated or destroyed by government, I'm, yes, I, I, tell me how much. Show me the land records. Show me how you guys were ousted off your property. I mean, there's going to have to be a lot of, you know, due diligence on this. Unless you just want to do helicopter money. Unless you just want to cut everybody a check. For example, in Asheville. Um, urban renewal, you know, there were, I went and looked this up. There were two major projects and, uh, one was the civic center, civic area project. This was, uh, started planning in 1964, completed 10 years later. And that project, so how this worked was the city would cough up a certain amount of money. They would have a matching portion of it and the feds would give them the rest of the money. And so the project was a $2.2 million project at the time. And, uh, they had to displace a whole bunch of people in order to build that uh, that area up. And what they uh, what who they displaced? A hundred and forty five families. Of those families, seventy one percent of them were white. Seventy one percent of them were white. And if they didn't get paid, they should get paid too, right? If because apparently there's one of the problems with this um, is that you have a lot of um, this federal policy uh, that for urban renewal that they were supposed to pay out for land that they seized. And then they didn't. And a lot of times people were just removed off of their property uh, without any kind of compensation. And that's wrong. So they should be made whole. And if not, if they're already dead, then their descendants should be. Um, What then? Uh, So 71% white, 29% black. But here's the other one, the bigger one, which was uh, East Riverside project. And this was, um, this included the South Side area where a lot of African American businesses and um, um, and families lived. And Shanika Smith actually mentioned this in her comments at the city council meeting the other night. The South Side project. This was 1966 through 74. Okay, I was born in 73, so this is now within my lifetime. All right, and um, the East Riverside project, uh, according to. Um, the Asheville Citizen Times, there's actually Mountain Express that uh, ran over the details of this, and here's what they said. March 7th, 1967, Asheville residents were set to vote on a $1.4 million bond that would cover the city's portion of a $6.3 million federal grant to finance the East Riverside Urban Renewal Project. According to the paper, the impacted area was home to 4,000 residents, 96% of whom were African-American. Right? Virtually all of them were black, and they were all run out. During its assessment of the neighborhood, the Redevelopment Commission of Asheville identified almost 1,300 structures, but 65 were reported, uh, all, sorry, all but 65, all but 65 had some type of structural deficiency. If the, uh, if the project was approved, 60% of these structures would be torn down and replaced with new homes, as well as other public and private facilities, to finance the project, taxes would have to be raised. 
So the original vote, by the way, failed. They then came back and uh, they won. The, they got the vote uh, on the second go round. Um, let me play for you real quick. This is Shanika Smith. Uh, she's a city councilwoman, and she makes reference to this Southside project. Um, I think the first step towards rectifying any societal problem is to acknowledge that there is an actual problem in the first place. So in my mind, this resolution is a first step in that it names the vast list of historical wrongs that have been um, perpetuated against the Black community up until this very day. Um, A lot of the feedback that we've gotten so far by email is that, you know, why should we pay for what happened during slavery? (laughs) And and my pushback against that is reparations is more than restitution for what happened during the transatlantic slave trade. It is a dark evil sin of chattel slavery that is the root of all injustice and inequity at work in American life today. So it is this institution that serves as a starting point for the building of strong economic floor for white America while attempting to keep blacks forever subordinate to its progress. So I wish that our educational system would have done a a greater job at revealing the origins and the lasting impacts of the many dimensions of racism so that accepting these truths early on in life and building um, empathy so that we can have you know, a even uh, analysis of what injustice in America was like for Black people, it, it will make a United States more possible. So this this resolution goes a long way in articulating that. By the way, I don't know if she realizes this or not, but Councilwoman Smith is making a pretty good argument for school freedom, school choice, right? Right. <laughs> Because if you have more schools that could teach different things like that, maybe, you know, instead of one top-down, systemically racisty agenda that's being foisted upon everybody uh, by, you know, one government agency, like maybe if you have a, a diffusion of curricula creation, maybe, you know, you end up with a better system, a more educated citizenry. But I digress. Um, I appreciate the resolution. And um, that is why I'm dedicating my yes vote tonight to um, honor my elders, both past and present. Um, I would like to see the latter part of the resolution, be it therefore resolved, um, the solution part of the document to to show that these are not just flowery words on paper. Um, This will mean that any report generated by a commission or Anyone tasked within the actual city staff will come back with tangible programs that that have real line item monetary resources attached to them. And this means full funding, full, fully funding our transit system and affordable housing. So the transit system is going to build generational wealth. Am I hearing that correctly? The transit system. That's what builds generational wealth. OK. And affordable housing, government subsidized housing that's what does it as well i i think you i hope she listens to the earlier portion of the podcast but also mapping out our assets our city the city assets while looking at other municipalities who are doing great jobs at coming up with innovative ways to address 
the generational wealth gap in black communities. And I trust that what's, what will come out of this, the direction of this resolution will give bring us back some shovel ready projects and, and some fully funded programs that actually deal with things like the discriminatory use of eminent domain. It hurt us, it hurt us deeply. Um, and with that being said, I want to read something that was gathered some years ago. It um, impacted my life when I returned to Asheville. It is um, a publication by the North Carolina Human Humanities Council. And this was written by Ms. Priscilla, Priscilla Ndaye. She's also a member of the Southside community, like I am a member of the Southside community. And this kind of... Um, um, quantifies what was lost just in the South Side, um, what we call the South. Um, in the East Riverside area, said by the late Reverend Wesley Grant, we lost 1,100 homes, six beauty parlors, five barber shops, five filling stations, 14 grocery stores, three laundromats, eight apartment houses, seven churches, three shoe shops, two cabinet shops, two auto body shops, one hotel, five funeral homes, one hospital, and three doctor's offices. It's been said that what happened, urban renewal in this city, not, not slavery, but urban renewal in this city um, came up to about over 400 acres of decimated homes and businesses. And this urban renewal project locally was the largest in the southeastern part of the United States. Um, this is what impacts me day to day. This is what still impacts this community. Anybody who goes throughout this community and you interact with um, Black people, both young and old, this is felt. You feel it, um, not only in our bodies and the way we interact and psychologically. So we took a pause a couple weeks ago um, on our budget adoption to have some real real conversations. And these conversations were, would generate how we increase equity in this community. So I want to say to the professional staff here at Asheville City, the city of Asheville, that we need to bring a red pen to the table <laughs> to actually circle expenditures and, and to really show how they directly relate to the stated goals within this resolution. And so I'm pretty sure we're going to have a ton of money during these COVID times, right? I'm sure that's not going to be an issue. <laughs> yeah. So where are you going to get the money? You want to start all these programs. You want to fully fund transit, which they couldn't even do when they had rosy budget projections. Uh, and uh, they made that campaign promise. Uh, then, of course, the plague hit. So where are you going to get the money from? Well, they open this up, as they always do, these types of things for public comment. And because they're all doing the Zoom chat meetings People are giving public comments via telephone. And uh, so it's weird. Like you get the city council and they just sit there and they just stare at their commuter, uh, computer monitors and you see uh, or you hear somebody, you know, come on and they just start yelling at the council. And people are a lot freer to do that into a telephone in the comfort of their own home versus in front of a packed you know, city council chamber meeting, it's a little bit more difficult to do it there. But so it's interesting hearing these comments and the radical activists that control the uh, the Democratic Party here in Asheville, uh, they uh, they lit up the lines 
Okay, they packed the phone lines, they had their scripts going, and so they are helpfully offering a solution for the financial piece of this. They know where the city council can get some cash, and right quick. You know where they want to go? If you said police budget, you'd be correct. They want to, they want to cut the police budget in half. They want to cut it in half and use that money to fund the reparation stuff, which they haven't fleshed out. They haven't lay, uh, uh, laid out any uh, solid proposals. And you even heard Councilwoman Smith say, right, she she kind of wished that in the conclusion part that there would have been some concrete steps, some some proposed you know, policy that creates an actual, you know, transfer of wealth. That's what they're interested in, a transfer of wealth. And that's why they want the county commission to sign on to this as well, because they know they're not going to have enough money, even though they always talk about Asheville as the economic engine that drives the whole region. They know they don't have enough money to pay for this kind of massive wealth transfer that they're envisioning. And this radical base of, like, predominantly, you know, college-educated white progressive radicals these are the people that are driving this train in the progressive Asheville city council meetings and they flood the uh, phone calls they flood the public comment period and they flood the email inboxes of all of these uh, city council members and they hold them hostage because the way the city council elects its uh, members is an all at-large system and these radicals they then get to dictate who makes it through to the final round in the general election. So they wield uh, outsized influence in local elections. And so that's why they need the county involved. They need the county involved because the county can tap way more properties to get way more tax dollars to then redistribute uh, to uh, other folks as part of this plan. That's the idea, at least. We'll see if it's uh, successful in the coming years. That's a wrap for this episode. Remember, subscribe to the podcast. Give it a thumbs up in the reviews as well, and maybe become a patron of the program. Thanks so much for the support. I appreciate it. We'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.